morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you for having uh, me and, and uh, inviting me to come and preach. It's a joy of mine to open up God's Word. My name is David Tubbs, and I brought with me my two oldest children, Adeline and Jubal, and uh, left uh, some children with my wife, and, and uh, they're attending church there at Trinity, and uh, part of some things there that they're going to enjoy today. But uh, someday, hopefully soon, uh, we can get together as a whole family and come, and uh, maybe they can even sing for you. They like to do that. I try to stay out of that. But uh, they, uh, they do a great job of singing, and it's a joy to uh, serve with them. We were uh, serving here in New Hampshire about, uh, let's see, now you've got to start doing the math. About 11 years ago, we were doing, uh, we, I was a youth pastor at Trinity for a few years and uh, served there for a few years. I, I, then I resigned and stayed. We stayed there in the church. I served as a deacon for a few years, and, and I've done construction throughout uh, my uh, short lifetime, but uh, I've done construction since I was just a, a young boy and and I've uh, been working in that, and then I got back into construction and did line work, so building power lines, uh, working for the utilities. Sometimes we'd even come up here and work out of Plymouth for the co-op. And so I did that for a few years. Then we were called down to New Jersey and served there as a chaplain in the school, as a training pastor under the pastoral leadership there. And we served in uh, that, that capacity for five years. And uh, after five years, sadly, the school ended up closing uh, due to a lack of enrollment, and uh, it was a joy to be there. We loved the church very close to them, but God led us back here closer to family and uh, took up the old job of, of doing line work, so doing that again. haven't worked up here yet uh, since I've been back, but I could imagine that happening at some point. And always a joy to come up to this area of New Hampshire. I think it's beautiful. I used to hunt up here, and I know there's good fishing too. Uh, Baker River is a, a great place to trout fish, and and, uh, but this is a beautiful country. So thank you for having us here, and I uh, look forward to being able to introduce my wife and my other children to you as well someday. Go ahead and take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Philippians 4, verse 4. The songs were right on key today to where uh, we're heading in the scriptures and the truth that God has for us. I was going back and forth, what to share with you this morning. I really like to preach through books, and I won't be doing that. Uh, necessarily, if, uh, if it uh, opens up for me to be able to come back, I don't know that I would come back to Philippians, but I was thinking of a message uh, just to share with you something that would be uh, uh, tender on my heart, and this is something the Lord has been working uh, in my life. This is actually a message I've preached before, and it's something that God has just brought to mind repeatedly uh, as I live my life. It's been such a challenge that uh, I, I rehearse it in my own life. Uh, and done so repeatedly and as I think about this time of year and and the tendency for it to be a sad time of year everybody's waiting for spring I don't know if you've looked on the billboards but I keep seeing think spring think spring and uh, this tends to be a time of year where people get sad and people are depressed and struggling and and I struggle with that I can't imagine living up in Alaska where uh, you have very little sunshine um, but, but this is a time of year when people struggle, and, and, and to be honest, Christians struggle with this. And you know what? It's not just winter. We struggle with being joyful. And it really ought not to be so, but in reality, it's true. 
And so what a message for us this morning from, from this verse. And we'll look at the book and give you the context. And you'll see, the, uh, I think, even deeper meaning as we look at the book together. Uh, what a rich truth. The verse says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I'm going to ask you to actually say that with me now, that verse. Let's say it together. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Very good. Uh, this will be the second verse you get to memorize today, and hopefully you'll take this with us. I've titled this message, The Key to Joy. The Key to Joy. And so a key can be defined as a small metal instrument, specially cut to fit into a lock and move its bolt. And we all have those probably in our pockets right now or in our purses. You use them to get in your house or your car. That's a key. There's another meaning to key, and it's, it's something that affords a mean of access. For instance, someone might say the key to happiness. What's the key to happiness? Well, today I've defined this as the key to joy. I found out about a key uh, shortly after we moved to New Jersey. We, uh, we left the house, and I realized that when we shut the door, we shut the keys inside. And uh, that was not a good thing. I thought, this is going to be an interesting first call to the landlord. But uh, thinking in desperation, I remembered that I had children, and they were small. And children, they fit in small places, and when you drop them, they bounce. (laughs) And so I was able to prop the window open a little bit, right where the AC was. And sure enough, uh, my my good boy Jubal there, he, he could fit right through that hole. And thankfully, we put that, that chair, that, that real soft chair, right below it. And so I was able to just kind of, and he loved it. He had a big smile on his face and kind of dropped him through the window right on the soft chair. And sure enough, we had access into the house. He was the key to access. And so as we think about joy, what is the access or the, the ability to get into this idea of having joy? of rejoicing, which we've been singing about this morning. How do we get to this place where we rejoice? In fact, the verse even says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How do we get to that? The answers are actually found right in the verse. The world really needs joyful Christians because one of the best testimonies you can give is the joy that you show. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul repeatedly commands believers to be thankful and to have joy, as he does in this epistle. And and Christians are not meant to be going around all sad and, and depressed. Instead, they should be showing the joy of Jesus on their face and in their lives. And so the Christian ought to be joyful, and the world around us needs us to be joyful, and even other Christians around us need us to be joyful, because yes, we're constantly battling sin, and and there's difficult times because we live in a sin-cursed world, and life can be pretty tough. But Paul tells us to rejoice always, and so we need to be joyful. So as we open up God's word, as we think about it, let's go ahead and ask God to open up to us from his word, the, the key to being joyful. So let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, it's a joy to open your word, and uh, we pleasure in it. And we come to you recognizing that we have been a sinful people. And even this last week, there's times where we disobeyed you, rather, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And we come to you as sinful people, realizing that many times we are not joyful like we should be. And we lose focus. 
Help us to draw our focus in on eternity and to see uh, who you are and what you've done. Give us this key to joy found in your scripture. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, help us to be a testimony to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I were to boil down the message of this passage, of this verse, it would be this. God wants believers to live a life of joy. It's pretty simple. God wants you as a believer to live a life of joy. And so the natural question uh, that comes from that, why should believers live a life of joy? And there's three truths I want to give to you that are going to help us to understand why we should live a life of joy and and explain to us how to do this as well. The first first truth I'd like to share with you is this. You should live a life of joy because rejoicing is a command. Let's go ahead and quote the verse before each point. And so let's say it right now together. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Well, as we understand this command... Uh, let's look at the book and understand the book. In order to do that, we need to go back into our history of the Philippian church, which would be found in Acts chapter 16. Now, for sake of time, I can't exposit Acts chapter 16 and this, so I'm going to summarize Acts 16. If you would like to turn there, feel free. If you'd like to study that later uh, as well, that would be good. But we're going to try to stay uh, mostly right here in Philippians. We'll be reading throughout Philippians. But uh, understand, in Acts chapter 16, we have the starting of the Philippian church. And Paul and Silas show up there in Philippi, and they go down to the river. Now, why would they go down to the river? They go down to the river because that was the common place to meet when you didn't have enough people within a city, Jewish people, to uh, meet to have a synagogue. You would normally have about 10 men in a city to start a synagogue. And if they didn't have that amount, they would meet down by the river. It was the common place to meet to worship, uh, to pray for Jewish people. And so Paul and Silas uh, realize there's no synagogue here, and they decide to go down to the river. And they meet there some ladies, and, and one lady is named Lydia. And so she would have been part of this Philippian church. He meets her by the, by the river. She was a God-fearer, means, meaning she was following the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament. She feared God and uh, understood uh, about these things to a degree, but did not understand that the Messiah had come, Jesus. And so they share that Jesus is the Christ and that he came to save uh, his people from their sins, as it says in Matthew chapter 1. And uh, she puts her trust in Christ and becomes a follower of Jesus. Now, interesting thing about her, uh, as you read in Acts 16, it says that she opened up her home. Uh, She was a seller of purple. And the fact that she was a seller of purple, she opened up her home. It was large enough for them and a good possibility that the the church actually met there. Uh, She was probably a woman uh, that was well-to-do, had uh, some wealth. And so Lydia would have been part of this church. And so who is receiving this letter, this call to be joyful, one of them would possibly be, probably be, Lydia. And that's important to remember, understand the history of who would have been receiving this. Possibly the slave girl, because after, or as they're going about their ministry there in Philippi, they come across a slave girl who's demon-possessed, and eventually they cast the demon out of her, and uh, possibly this, this, this slave girl was also part of this church that would have been receiving this letter uh, from Paul to the Philippians. 
another good possible member of the church was the Philippian jailer. If you remember this story in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, after they heal uh, this, this demon-possessed girl, are actually thrown into prison. Uh, they're beaten, and then after an earthquake, the chains fall off. Uh, the Philippian jailer thinks everybody is going to flee. He understands his life for theirs. He's about to kill himself. Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And the Philippian jailer asks a wonderful question. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul gives a wonderful answer. Very simple answer. But a very truthful, powerful answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And it reminds us, of course, of John chapter 3, verse 16. And so the Philippian jailer, and it says his family also believes, they're all baptized. They would have been part of this Philippian church and would have received this message from Paul. And uh, there's also uh, brothers mentioned in Acts 16.40 implies that there was other believers as well. They would have been the recipients. Now let's talk more about them, this Philippian church. Now in, in the book of Philippians, we see some interesting things come out. You see, this church had helped Paul in ministry. And they were, they were fervent in this. They, they were dedicated to it. And so jump over with me to Philippians 4. It's probably on the same page or the next page. Verse 15 and 16. Notice what Paul says. He says, Let us therefore as many uh, be perfect, be thus minded. Oh, sorry, that's chapter 3. Uh, verse 15 and 16 of chapter 4. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only... For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity. Now those verses are very important. So what he's saying is, no other churches that we start and we're working with were sending aid to help me as I continue on this ministry. Now Paul goes along and it's like he's living city by city. He doesn't have an income. Uh, He's had help from churches to some degree, but again, understand it wasn't like our day. Well, let's mail him a check. Not going to happen. And so they're going along and they're trying to stay you know, alive as well as preach, preach the gospel and, and serve these people. Understand that at some points he actually has to stop preaching as much and go to work. And he was a tent maker. And so as he goes along, he's just trying to make it wherever he is as well as primarily concerned about sharing the gospel. And so as he goes, he's saying, you Philippians, you helped me out as I went by sharing with me and actually sending gifts. And we're not talking about mail, we're talking about carriers. And who would they send? They would send people from their church with these gifts, carrying money. And I understand, again, the safety of the day uh, was not quite like us. And uh, traveling roads, carrying money, goods, things like this, to help these missionaries out. This was something they, they, they took part in. And Paul is complimenting them. They'd been, been very helpful in his ministry. And it says there in verse 16, it says, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent aid twice. Twice. Now that's a big deal. Because when we look at that in Acts, we believe that he was only in Thessalonica for about three weeks. Approximately. He was there for three Sabbaths. So so three weeks, two trips. And uh, from my calculation, straight line, we're talking about 100 miles. That's dedication. 
I mean, you might write a check to a missionary and say, yes, let's send that to a missionary. Would you be willing to travel that far? And we're not talking about a plane, car, bus, or a bike. A lot of it just walking. So these are dedicated people. And uh, in 2 Corinthians 11.9, he, he says that they sent aid when he was in Corinth. So there's another time. In Philippians chapter 2, we'll look at this a little bit later. It talks about they actually sent a person with them. Now, this is a wonderful gift that a church can give to a missionary. Not just money, but help. They sent this man called Epaphroditus, and he actually came bearing the gifts and actually serves with him. I mean, what a help that is to a missionary. What do you need done? Paint? What? Carry something? Need me to run an errand? Pass out tracks? No, no, Epaphroditus, I, I don't know to what degree he served Paul, but he came and he served Paul. And so this was a church that was very active in ministry. So, so we've looked at some of the people that were part of the church. We've looked at some of the things they've done. Paul is very pleased with them. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you think Paul's pretty happy with this church? I'll tell you what, you're not going to find as many letters that uh, are as close to Philippians in, uh, in regards to Paul's uh, just gratefulness for their service. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 8. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. He really wanted to be with them, and, and he longed for them and cared for them. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Finally, uh, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Do you think he cares about them? Yeah. Yeah, he loves these people. 4.14, he says, Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. And so he's praised and praised and praised. And so he cares about this people. Now, why is that important to Philippians 4.4? 4? Because he cares about these people. They've been active in ministry. And yet, guess what? They have a struggle. They haven't been joyful. Paul is recognizing you're going to struggle with this. I imagine Paul struggled with this. You need to be joyful. And he's going to remind them again and again. The theme of joy in Philippians is uh, quite abundant. Uh, this church is very dear to Paul. He is concerned that they would be joyful. And the Philippian church is in the midst of persecution They've had false teaching. They've had fighting even amongst themselves. They're going through trials. And joy in the verb or noun form is used 16 times in this short book. 16 times. Now it's used in different ways. It's interesting as you follow the use of it. At first, it's Paul speaking of his joy. And we've even read that in uh, verses uh, 3 through 5, chapter 1. And he's, he's modeling this before him. It appears like he's modeling this before them. And then as we get later on in the book, towards the end, it's exhortations for them to be joyful. Very interesting, huh? At the, at the very end, he does include another time when he is joyful. And so it's not like you can break it down strictly. But you see him model this and then say, you need to be joyful. 
Now, if you think about Paul and his life, his ministry, his trials, his beatings, his stoning, if anybody probably would have an excuse to kind of struggle with joy, I'd say Paul probably had one. But he says, nope, there's no excuse. Nope, we need to be joyful. And so he models this joy, and then he's going to challenge them to do this. And, uh, and so what we see here is he's actually going to command them. This sentence here in chapter 4, verse 4, it's in what we call the imperative. The imperative. And so the first reason why we need to actually rejoice in the Lord is it's a command. And it's a command given to people he loves who are active in ministry, but it's a command nonetheless. So in the imperative, it means you need to do this. And, and so he says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And so when we have a command in holy writ, in Scripture, God breathed Scripture, and we don't do it, what is it? It's sin, it's disobedience. I, I like to ask that question to my children. If mommy and daddy told you to do this and you didn't do it, what is it? It's disobedience. Same for me, if I don't rejoice. It's disobedience. That's why you should be rejoicing. It's actually wrong for you not to be rejoicing. That's convicting. Because I look back at this last week, Mm, there were some times when I wasn't rejoicing. There was a lot of time I wasn't rejoicing. This is a command. And uh, that really sheds light on this as well. That means it's a choice. Because we live in an emotionally driven culture, and uh, it's all about you know, happiness, emotion, and that's based upon how you feel. This isn't based upon the way that you feel. This is a choice you make. Will you rejoice in the Lord? And to add weight to the command, it's said twice in the same verse. So he doesn't just say rejoice in the Lord always. It says rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. To add more weight to it, turn back to chapter 3, verse 1. He already said it. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous or tedious, but for you it is safe. This is something that's safe for me to keep reminding you about. You've got to be joyful. So it's a command. It's mentioned twice in a row, not to mention this is the third time it's mentioned, second and third time it's mentioned in the book. This command follows a plea for unity as well, and that's an important concept. So he's talking to them in verse 3. He talks to uh, these two ladies. He says, And I treat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me the gospel, with Clement also, with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Sorry, verse 2 as well. I beseech Euodus, and I beseech Sintich, that they be of the same mind of the Lord. So in the midst of this difficulty, as they're kind of struggling, there's some disunity He's going to challenge them, you need to rejoice in the Lord. And then right after that, he's going to talk to them about different aspects of godly living. And so this command fits right in there. Rejoice in the Lord always, and and it it ties right into godly living, and uh, we're going to see how it connects even more back to that idea of unity as well. Uh, 
perhaps you're a parent or you've heard parents before make suggestions to their children. On a day like this, and tomorrow is supposed to be even nicer, a parent might say to their child as they start to run out the door, you might want to put on a sweatshirt. Why? Because, you know, it's still a little chilly in the air and you want to have something. But in a suggestive tone, they say, you might want to do that. And, and perhaps based on the situation, the child, the parent, and, the, and, and what's going on, if the child doesn't do that, the, the parent might allow the child not to do that. And then when the child comes in and says, I'm cold, <laughs> as a parent, we say, right, and you should have listened. But it is more of a suggestive tone. However, a parent with a child, especially a toddler near a street, will not use normally a suggestive tone. Instead, they'll say, do not go near that road. And if you go near that road, there will be consequences. And you don't normally just say it once. You just you keep reminding them. Why? Because it's a severe consequence if they disobey. So now let's think back to what Paul said. Perhaps there's a great danger if we stop rejoicing in the Lord. I would say there is. There is a great danger. And so he repeatedly says it, and he doesn't suggest it. He commands it. Keep that in mind when you wake up on a Monday morning. Because Monday mornings are known to be the excuse for being sorrowful and sad. Oh, be careful. Not a suggestion. It's a command. And done so repeatedly. So first we're commanded to do this. Let's make some uh, applications. Obeying a command from God requires a submissive spirit. You know why a lot of times we're not rejoicing? (laughs) Because we're not submissive. How often we would justify our grumpy living and disobedience and actually refuse to rejoice. How would you do that? Well, I don't feel like it. Times are tough. And, and I don't deny that. Some of you probably have great difficulties and great trials. We're going to look at that next. Here's another challenge for you. Am I willing to lead others in obedience? Are you willing to be the example like Paul was, the model to follow? Paul was, was, was a beautiful model in, in the sense of rejoicing. Are you willing to lovingly encourage your brother or sister in Christ to change their attitude? And you don't always have to do it necessarily with upfront confrontation. You can just do it by being joyful. It's contagious. And people will catch it. Instead of spreading the flu, let's spread some joy. Second reason why we should live a life of joy. You should live a life of joy because rejoicing is commanded to be constant. So first, it's a command. Second of all, it's a command that is uh, supposed to be followed constantly. So you should live a life of joy because rejoicing is commanded to be constant. Let's, let's go ahead and say our memory verse, our second memory verse here this morning. Philippians 4.4 4, together. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So as we look at this... Uh, it's very interesting that this is an unconditional command. Paul inserts a word into this command that really adds a lot of meaning and complexity in a sense to this. Uh, The word is always. 
And so rejoicing is not something that is to be taking place at periods of time, for instance, on Sunday morning, or when I'm feeling good, or on a Friday after work. No, rejoicing is supposed to take place always. That made the difficulty in following this command a lot a lot harder. And and I I actually hope that in talking about these first two points, I actually kind of frustrate you. And I'll explain why in a little bit. But we're supposed to be rejoicing. And second of all, it's supposed to be happening all the time. In fact, it should be the aroma of the believer's life. Constant rejoicing. Constant joy. And he illustrates this with his life. Now, I want to show you throughout this book something about Paul and his difficulties and also the difficulties of Philippians. So I'm going to make an assumption. My assumption is that Paul follows what he preaches. Okay? So we're going to look at passages throughout Philippians. We're going to have to do it quickly. But as we do it, I'm making this assumption that Paul wants them to rejoice even in these situations, and he was going to rejoice in these situations. Do you follow me? Does that make sense? So now let's jump back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. So these are situations that he's going through, that he's communicating with the Philippians, and the Philippians are, are going through as well. So chapter 1, verse 12, he says, But I uh, would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in other places. In all other places, verse 14, And many of the brethren of the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so what he's talking about here is, I'm in prison. And the Philippians knew this. I'm in jail. So, Paul is saying we need to rejoice always. Do you think he meant that means when you're in jail? So, I want to I draw a truth from this now and, and give you a principle that comes from this. Therefore, rejoicing the Lord is not bound by our state of freedom or the place we reside. He said, I don't like where I live. I don't like being underneath my parents. I don't like the job. No. If you're even in prison... Rejoicing is not based upon those things. Not this rejoicing. How about in the midst of unkindness? Verse 15 through 18, chapter 1. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. You see that word come out? So what he's saying here is there's actually people out there that is using the fact that I am in prison against me and sharing the gospel with an attempt to actually attack Paul and be hard on Paul and frustrate Paul. Now, I don't get the details of all uh, how they're doing that. I don't know that we understand this. But they're using good things like preaching the gospel to actually attack Paul. It was, a, it was a bad situation. So they were being ungodly even though they were trying to share the gospel. And sadly, that can happen sometimes. So in the midst of unkindness, and they're attacking Paul in a sense and trying to hurt his ministry and hurt him and be offensive to him, do you think Paul wants to rejoice? 
or, or should rejoice? Yes. Yes. If he's going to live what he preaches, and I believe he did, he's going to rejoice in this. Therefore, rejoicing in the Lord can happen even though others are unkind to us. So the fact that people are treating you unkindly, uh, perhaps at work, perhaps at school, perhaps at your home. Rejoicing is not based upon the way that other people treat me. Here's another one. How about in the loss of loved ones? Chapter 2, 25 through 30, talks about Epaphroditus. And it says, Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion, uh, in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants, this is the one that they had sent, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard that he had been sick, for indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So he almost lost Epaphroditus. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit more detailed in just a moment. But here in the loss of loved ones, God would still want us to rejoice. Therefore, rejoicing in the Lord can happen in the midst of sorrow and does not require the removal of the sorrow. So the fact that you have sorrow in your life is not necessarily wrong. You understand? You can be sorrowful, and hopefully you are at a funeral and in the appropriate times of life. It says, weep with those who weep, right? But even in the midst of sorrow, you can have joy. chapter 3 verse 4 through 7 he starts talking about his past though i might also have confidence in the flesh if any other man thinketh that he hath where whereof he might trust in the flesh i more and he starts listing all these things that he has in his previous life because he was a hebrew of the hebrews but in the end he realizes this is all loss and so in the reality of a christless past when he realizes, you know what, this is all pointless. And in fact, he was even very uh, much a part of killing the first martyr of the church, Stephen. Imagine that was difficult to live with. Probably. And so even in the midst of a Christless past, perhaps you have a past that was dark. And you have a lot of regrets. And we all have regrets. Therefore, rejoicing in the Lord does not require a perfect past without regrets. Chapter 4, verse 2, we already read that verse. It's talking about those ladies fighting together. And he's going to tell them right after that to rejoice. That means, in the midst of disagreement, we can rejoice. Disagreement. And this is within a church. Can people ever disagree within a church? <laughs> Boy. Yeah, actually, it's quite common. Therefore, rejoicing in the Lord does not require total agreement with other Christians, even Christians in the same church. You can still be joyful. Hmm. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 10 through 13, it says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me hath flourished again, wherein you are also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therefore to be content. He talks about having little. He talks about having much. And so, in the midst of one or blessing, you can have joy. Therefore, rejoicing in the Lord does not require need or blessing. You could be rich. You could be poor. It's not dependent upon material things. Now, your world will tell you, our world will tell us, rejoicing is based upon you know, what you have. That's not true. No, no. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's a constant command. 
And really, this is what's supposed to be the aroma of the believer's life. When you come into a house, uh, it tends to give off its own aroma. The things you cook, the way you live, perhaps you come in on a morning after bacon was cooked. That's a good smell. Uh, perhaps Thanksgiving Day, we used to go out hunting in the morning. Really enjoy doing that. And coming back, maybe turkey and stuffing's already cooking. Uh, all sorts of pies. Oh boy, I'm getting hungry already. Apple pie, pumpkin pie. You have all that, the aroma, the smell. Good smell. Let me tell you this. Rejoicing and this idea of joy ought to be the constant aroma of the believer's life. It ought to just come off you. Kind of like people that burn wood. I like to burn wood. And I'm sure many of you do that. You get the wood smoke smell. I love that. The aroma. And so what's the aroma of your life? If rejoice in the Lord is an unconditional term and I do not always obey, then what I am doing instead is complaining, I'm ungrateful, and I'm really disobeying. And often we try to excuse this based upon uh, many aspects, uh, many details of life, perhaps sorrow, perhaps difficulty, uh, but it's no excuse. He says always. There's, There's no way around that. And in sharing these two truths, the fact that rejoicing is a command, and it's a command that's supposed to always take place, I have not given you the key to joy. In fact, I've probably frustrated you. And I kind of hope that I have. Because just trying to do it, you will fail. And, and I'm going to go around. I'm going to be joyful. Now, we've probably all tried it. It doesn't work. So what is the key to joy. You ought to live a life of joy because true rejoicing is in Christ. That's why. What does it say? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in what? The Lord. What makes rejoicing possible in the midst of the greatest sorrow and difficulty in life. It's Christ. The word is uh, Cairo, and uh, it just simply means to be joyful or to rejoice. You know, we can do it in song. I think we all understand this idea of rejoicing. I think it's grander than happiness, but certainly happiness is part of it. And it's this choice to be joyful that, wow, things are really good in a certain sense. And we find that in the phrase, rejoice in the Lord. doesn't matter what circumstance you have in life. The Lord is constant. The Lord is what this command is all about. If I were to give my own definition, it's a choice to be joyful as we reflect on Christ and all that we have through him. That's why when my car breaks down... I can still be joyful because Christ didn't break down. That's why when someone hurts me by what they said, I can still be joyful because Christ has done everything to help me. And you see, Christ never changes. Same yesterday, today, and forever. 
as we look at this, we find that we can always rejoice in the Lord as believers because he and our position in him are concrete. Much of our joy in life is conditional. Okay, We have joy at a wedding. We have joy at a party, at a graduation. We have joy on a Friday. However, this is what we would call conditional joy. And he's telling us to have unconditional joy. Look at Philippians chapter 2. I already read part of this, but I want to focus in on this. In, in verse 25 through 30, he's talking about Epaphroditus. He's sick. Verse 26, For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because uh, that ye had heard that he had been sick. The, the church had heard he had been sick, but they didn't hear that he made it out. And this was bad sickness. Like, we don't think he's going to make it. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again, ye may rejoice. You see that? Ye may rejoice when what? He returns when they see him alive. Hey, he's alive. Let's rejoice. Is that conditional or unconditional rejoicing? That's conditional. Why? It's based upon when Epaphroditus shows up. You jump over to chapter 4, verse 4. Let me tell you, the word always makes this unconditional. Why is that? Because Christ is constant. We don't have to worry about him getting sick. We don't have to worry about any failure in Jesus Christ. He is constant. He is faithful. He will not let us down. And so rejoicing in the Lord, that's what it's all about. That's what enables us to do it. In obedience, that's what enables us to do it always because it's constant in Christ. And when we focus upward on Jesus Christ, then it makes it possible to obey. That's the key. That's the key that opens up the door. And so we need to recognize our condition in Christ. If you're a believer, listen, you have everything given to you uh, imaginable. Uh, the goodness of God, uh, the inheritance that awaits for us, a walk with God, the joy of knowing your sins are forgiven, and, and, and a way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. And so it's all paved. It's all taken care of. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. And yes, you're going to go through sorrow and difficulty and need and, and frustration and, and, and times of hurt. But listen, Christ is constant. Now, if you're an unbeliever today, meaning you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, I challenge you, you ought to come into this joy. And it comes when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so I challenge you, put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Philippian jailer said, What must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead for you. And you can have eternal life. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God's strength to remember him and what we have in him, giving us access into joy. Dear Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for the rich gift of Jesus Christ. We have so much in him, and we would ask, Father, that we would be a joyful people today and this week, that we would show the joy of Christ on our hearts and in our lives, and that believers around us and unbelievers around us would see that Jesus is what we're all about. And uh, we pray that you would work in the hearts of each one here. Uh, encourage them, challenge them, 
And uh, if there be any soul that has not trusted in Christ, we would ask that they would put their faith in Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name.